I next met with nurse practitioner Ms. Beth E.B. Sandy, who reviewed with me how she counsels patients about to receive various therapies for lung cancer, beginning with EGFR TKIs. So in general, the EGFR TKIs are going to have rash, and that will vary from a mild rash to a severe rash, depending on how the patient tolerates it, and some other factors as well, such as taking it on an empty stomach can minimize the rash because hopefully you're getting a more level absorption, as opposed to if you take it with food, it can be absorbed very quickly and sometimes have an increased rash associated with it. Can you talk a little bit more about the type of rash that's seen and whether or not any kind of interventions can either prevent it or make it better? So the rash we refer to as papulopustular eruption. Sometimes you'll still see acneiform written, and I'm not totally against the acneiform terminology because a lot of people can identify with that as opposed to papulopustular eruption. But papulopustular eruption simply means that a papule is red and raised and a pustule has pus containing, so you know what people would term as like a white head or white pustule that you would see. So papulopustular eruption tends to be dry, tends to happen on the face and chest or sun-exposed areas. And it can be painful. It can be severe where, you know, men may have a hard time shaving because it's dry and it's crusting. Or you may have a hard time wearing your glasses that you wear to work every day because it's painful for them to sit around your eyes. But again, it can be very variable depending on the patient. And what do you see with these dermatologic problems over time? Do they tend to stay the same? Do they get better? What happens? So I would say that in the first couple weeks, you'll definitely see it start. It may peak around the two-week time frame. And then some patients, it waxes and wanes over time. Most of the time, after like three or four months on the drug, it's going to sort of stay where it's going to stay. Now, hopefully by then you're treating the rash. So the treatment that you've figured out, whether topical or oral for the rash, should be working at that point. I have seen some patients, especially if you're playing with the dose up or down of the TKI, then the rash may worsen. It also can worsen depending if you start another drug that can potentiate. You know, you have to remember other drugs can make the EGFR TKI stronger in your body. Or if you are at the beach or at a sun-exposed area, those things can also exacerbate the rash. What advice do you give to patients about to start an EGFR TKI in terms of what they could do to sort of prevent it? So, you know, I think that may change a little bit right now. So currently for non-small cell lung cancer, the only EGFR TKI that was approved was erlotinib, in which the grade 3, 4 rash is around 9%. So For prevention, I was not typically going right to an oral antibiotic for a 9% grade 3, 4 rash. Typically, I would tell patients to moisturize, for sure, and not just their face and neck, but their whole body to prevent the dry skin and the rash, to avoid direct sun exposure. And if they're going to be out in the sun, if they're going out to play with their child in the park or something like that, I would definitely apply sunblock to any areas or wear a hat. Mild soaps, making sure that they're not putting lotions or soaps that have a lot of fragrances or dyes in them that would irritate the skin. And what about treatment of the dermatologic problems once they start developing? 
So again, the treatment would depend on the severity of the rash. So in my clinic, if a patient starts on an EGFR TKI, then I would have them follow up in 10 to 14 days in the clinic to see how they're doing and how the rash is. If they've developed what I would call a grade one or two rash with some mild papulopustular eruption on the face and neck, I may just turn to a topical such as topical clindamycin T-gel, a topical hydrocortisone cream, 1% is over the counter, or a 2.5% hydrocortisone cream would be a prescription strength, especially if there's itching associated with the rash. The hydrocortisone is nicer as opposed to the clindamycin gel is a bit more drying. But if it seems to be a more wet rash, that tends to be better for them because then it dries them up. How would you respond to a patient who says, oh, gee, I'm glad I have this rash because it probably means the drug's working? You know, initially, we put a lot more stock in that than it's worth now. I think that I would say to them, well, you know, you're having a rash. I think we're definitely inhibiting epidermal growth factor at this point. So I would never make that to be a negative thing. But on the flip side of that, if a patient's not necessarily having a terrible rash, I would not say to them, oh, I don't think the drug is working. So that is definitely not a clear-cut answer. I have a patient I can think of that I actually just saw yesterday who is responding remarkably to the drug, and she actually owns a skincare shop. So she's very on top of these products, and she keeps her skin great. So she's just managing it really well, but that doesn't mean the drug wasn't working for her. I'm just kind of curious, and this patient, what was her situation, and how long ago did she get started on the erlotinib? She started two months ago because this was her first post-treatment scan that we just saw yesterday. And they actually called a complete response on her scan, which she was absolutely thrilled. Wow. Where did she have metastatic disease? Her mets were to the liver. Hmm. Interesting. Another non-smoker? Yes. I guess we do see people who smoke who have EGFR mutations also. Yep. Another patient that I was talking about as well, who was on a different EGFR TKI, she did smoke for 23 years, half a pack a day. Now, she had quit in 1999, so she had quit a fairly significant time ago, but for 23 years, she did smoke. That's interesting. You said she's on another EGFR TKI. I guess that means a fatinib? That's correct. Because as you alluded to the fact that until recently, the only EGFR TKI that was approved was erlotinib, a reversible you know, inhibitor, whereas this new agent, afatinib, that just got approved is irreversible binding that occurs. What was the situation with this lady on afatinib? How did she present? Yeah, so she was in her mid-50s when she presented. She had pretty significant lung disease at the time, so she was short of breath at the time that she presented and was losing weight, feeling sick from her disease. And originally, her EGFR mutation status was not clear based on some sampling issues. So she was actually originally on chemotherapy and then was found later on to have an EGFR mutation. So she initially had been on erlotinib prior to starting the afatinib. And what happened when she was on the erlotinib? So when she was on the erlotinib, she had some typical EGFR TKI side effects. I don't believe that her rash ever got beyond a grade one, two. We didn't have too much problems when she was on the erlotinib. But and did she respond to that erlotinib? So she did, but not as long as we would have thought. So she only had about a four- to five-month response, which is probably about average maybe for a general population, but for someone with an EGFR mutated cancer, we would have thought she would have had a more durable response. And so 
she got treated with afatinib after having progression on erlotinib? Correct. She actually had chemotherapy after hmm. because, you know, this is going back a year ago. So the drug was not approved at the time. And then after more chemotherapy, especially the other thing, too, was that, again, without having the durable response to the erlotinib, we weren't that excited about trying another EGFR inhibitor. So she actually had chemotherapy and then was able to get on the drug on a clinical trial probably about six months ago or so. And what's happened with her tumor? So she had some response when she started the afatinib, but her toxicities were much more significant than when she was on the erlotinib. And the dosage of afatinib is 40 milligrams daily. We ended up having to dose reduce her due to both rash and diarrhea. It was very difficult to get under control. Yeah, I was going to ask you, now that there are two agents out there, both approved for this situation, how people are choosing between in this situation, it's kind of interesting she had one and they might try the other. What's your understanding in terms of the difference between these two drugs, other than the fact, like I said, that the afatinib is an irreversible binder, but clinically, what do we know about it? So both drugs are approved in the first-line setting for EGFR-mutated non-small cell lung cancer. Both drugs in clinical trials in EGFR-mutated patients versus chemotherapy showed a significant improvement in response. Now, they've never been done in a head-to-head trial. So I can't sit here and say that erlotinib versus afatinib, one or the other, is better in the first-line setting because it's never been done as a head-to-head trial. I do know that you're going to see differences in toxicities. The afatinib, and I would say it's probably because of its irreversible nature, has a more significant grade 3-4 EGFR rash or papulopustular eruption. So I quoted about 9% for the erlotinib. It's upwards of more like 15-16% grade 3-4 rash for the afatinib. Fatinib. And that's going to look more like your EGFR monoclonal rashes, such as cetuximab or panitumumab, where we're used to seeing a little bit more severity. Same goes with the diarrhea. The diarrhea is more significant. The grade 3-4 diarrhea is more significant with the afatinib group than it is in their allotinib. Now, whether or not that means the response rates are going to be better, again, there's not been a head-to-head comparison. So... So, yeah, this is a common problem in oncology when you have two drugs that are very similar, but they haven't been compared head-to-head. They're studied in two different trials. You don't know really. I mean, you kind of compare the numbers, but you really don't know for sure what the difference is. It'll be interesting to see how people use these two drugs now that they're two approved. But I guess the one thing that's interesting about afatinib is we're starting to see research in patients who've had progression on an EGFR-TKI, combining it with an EGFR antibody, which of course is more commonly used in, for example, colon cancer, such as cetuximab. And I don't know if you had any experience with that combination, but I guess the initial results of those kinds of trials look pretty interesting. Yeah, so I have not had any patients who are on both the afatinib and cetuximab. I know there's a trial that looked at that, and yes, and I've heard the same thing, is that there's some good results. I don't know the toxicity data for that. I can imagine that it's certainly not any better than afatinib alone, so we're definitely going to be seeing some toxicity from that, and I think that's something that'll be looked at in the future. Yeah, I think it has been stated, as you would imagine, they're both dermatologically toxic, that the combination is kind of difficult. On the other hand, it's not, you know, an acute AML regimen where your life might be threatened. So at least it's more in the symptomatic realm. 
Well, and I think for those patients, you would definitely want a stronger preemptive approach. So, you know, in a patient who was receiving panitumumab or cetuximab, enofatinib now, I would be much more apt to start them on an oral antibiotics such as minocycline or doxycycline preemptively at the day they start the drug, as opposed to how I was with the erlotinib, which I didn't feel was as likely to cause a grade three, four rash. Now, one of the things that I've been hearing from people in the field over the last few years, and actually you see this in different parts of oncology, kind of a new concept, which is the idea of when you're using a biologic and then the patient has disease progression where normally, like with chemotherapy, you're going to stop it and not ever use it again. With a lot of biologics, including EGFRTIs, people are continuing them in spite of progression and then adding other things in. Is that something that you and your colleagues are doing at your place? Yeah, certainly, especially if a patient gets a durable response to three years, we're really reluctant to withdraw that targeted agent from them. And a lot of times the progression that you see is minimal. So again, with minimal progression, you're feeling like, oh, maybe they've developed a little resistance, but if I withdraw this drug, are they going to get just a gallop in their disease progression? So a lot of times we will keep them on it and try to add another agent, whether it be chemotherapy or another targeted agent. Another thing that you even hear this in breast cancer with HER2-positive disease where we're seeing better targeted therapy is the issue of brain metastases. What is your experience with that, particularly in these patients with mutations? So I was actually going to bring that up if you didn't. So that's actually become a problem over, I would say, the past two years that we have not dealt with in my 10 years of experience doing lung cancer. So patients either present with the brain metastases or develop them because if you think about it, I mean, lung cancer, if you're going to have someone on treatment for four and five years, at some point, it's going to probably spread to the brain because you're not getting good brain penetration from most of these oral drugs or the IV drugs for that matter. So we have patients Actually, a number of, I can think of one of my ALK and one of my EGFR inhibitor patients, both have been on therapy for greater than three years. Both have brain metastases that they presented with. So now their disease in their body is very well controlled, but the disease in their brain is not well controlled. The patient on the ALK inhibitor, she had whole brain radiation to start. And now, while there's no disease that we see in the brain that's recurred, she's having long-term side effects from whole brain radiation and significant cognitive problems that, to be frank, in the past, patients didn't live long enough to see that. And now that's becoming an issue. The EGFR gentleman, mutation-positive gentleman, he had brain meds to start, and he's had gamma knife three times, I believe, to sort of cherry pick some of these different lesions. He currently has active lesions that we're following. His neurocognitive status is not as significantly worse as the other woman, but he's also starting to develop some problems. And again, the idea becomes, well, do we gamma knife him again? Do we sort of watch them? The brain control has become an issue with these patients when you keep the disease in their body under such good control for so long. So in most of our chat today, I want to emphasize metastatic non-small cell lung cancer, but I do want to ask you a couple things about treating earlier disease. And one question that comes up all the time is, you know, these agents are so impressive, these targeted agents in metastatic disease, most of the patients respond. The toxicity is usually, you know, manageable. 
So the natural thought is why not use it earlier, particularly why not use it in the adjuvant setting after they've had surgery but at risk for recurrence. What do we know right now about using these agents in the adjuvant situation? So right now, there's no data to support using them in the adjuvant setting. We have participated in a trial with Mass General looking at using erlotinib in the adjuvant setting after adjuvant chemotherapy, where we know adjuvant chemotherapy improves survival in certain stages of early stage disease after surgery. But there hasn't been anything. Now, you're right, it's very tempting. This trial looked at doing adjuvant or latinib for two years after the chemotherapy. I don't believe the final results are back because, again, you're going to have to wait at least five years for that data to mature. Well, you'd like to anyway, but it's going to take time for that data to mature because you have to see if these patients recur. And especially the mutated patients, if they had EGFR mutation therapy for two years after surgery, it may take them time to recur. So I think to get good data, it's just going to take time on that. Whether to do it off study, you know, it's very tempting. And I can say that we have done it sometimes and other times we haven't. A little bit depends on the patient. I think you should talk to patients about it, but just knowing that there's no data, the cost of the drugs can be an issue in the setting of no data to support it, but it is certainly tempting. It really is, and of course, even that study, we're not going to get a definite answer because it's not randomized against no treatment, but there are studies out there that are looking at, you know, this phase three, you know, big, large studies that try to really come up with an answer, but... I mean, I have to say that most of the experts I've talked to, as you just said, don't generally do it, and they won't do it unless, you know, we see evidence. It could have a harmful effect. You know, anything's possible. So I guess we'll see. I am curious, though, what it was like in that study to maintain people who don't have active disease, so it's, you know, an adjuvant situation, on two years of therapy. I would kind of wonder whether it'd be difficult. So we had four people on that study, two men, two women. One of the men and one of the women came off after less than six months of therapy. Because of skin problems? Yeah, but skin problems that if they had metastatic disease, they would have stayed on. But again, given it was in the adjuvant setting, you know, there's this whole, you know, of course, patients always say, the surgeon got it all and I should be fine. So, and it just seems, again, I'm so biased to lung cancer because it's what I've done the last 10 years, but it just seems like in the lung cancer setting, people are so much less likely to do adjuvant therapy as opposed to maybe in the breast cancer setting or another setting where they're maybe more motivated. I don't know. But we do find, even with adjuvant chemotherapy where there is data, not every patient chooses to do that in the feeling that, you know, oh, we'll treat it if it comes back, or the surgeon got it all, so I don't want to do this. I mean, realistically, you know, a certain fraction of people are cured with surgery. Oh, absolutely. You know, even though maybe it could be 50-50, but they still, I could understand that if they have a 50% chance they have nothing wrong, they're not going to necessarily want to put up with side effects. Right, right. But that being said, there is statistically significant data that would show that your chances are better if you took the adjuvant chemotherapy for most stages of disease. Certainly with chemotherapy. Yeah, these targeted agents will be interesting to see how that evolves over the years. I guess that one study that you participated in, even though everybody got the treatment, so you really can't say, the one thing that I thought was really interesting that you know came out was that they had very few recurrences in the two years when they were taking the drugs, and then when they stopped, they started to see more recurrences. Yeah. Our two people that stayed on 
just finished within the past year. So it's too soon for me to sort of tell. Right. Interesting. Let's spend the rest of the time talking about the other 90% of non-small lung cancer. I've heard the term now pan-wild type, which means they don't have any mutations. So they don't have an EGFR mutation in their tumor. They don't have an ALK translocation, et cetera. These are the majority of patients. What's the usual approach? Let's focus on the more common one, adenocarcinoma, in terms of the types of initial treatments these people tend to receive. Right. So in a patient newly diagnosed with stage 4 non-small cell lung cancer adenocarcinoma subtype, there's a variety of treatments that are available for them. Like you said, the pan-wild type, so they don't have any mutations that we're aware of. So chemotherapy, of course, would be their frontline option. Certainly platinum, either carboplatin or cisplatin, being the cornerstone of their therapy. Now, the drugs that you pair with that, Pemetrexid has gotten a lot of usage, and there's certainly data to support that. So Pemetrexid is a commonly used chemotherapy along with that. However, it's not wrong to use a taxane, such as paclitaxel or docetaxel or nab paclitaxel is another one that's now approved. Other drugs, vinarelbine, gemcitabine, are out there as well. And then there's always the question of adding in bevacizumab. So for an adenocarcinoma patient or anything that's not a squamous, truly you could consider adding in bevacizumab if they're eligible as far as no significant hemoptysis, controlled blood pressure, no significant cardiac events within the past year, no you know recent GI bleed or GI perforation. And can you talk a little bit more about the kinds of counseling and patient education you do in these situations? Maybe we can start out with, you know, I guess there are a couple of common regimens, as you mentioned, that are used. One, it seems like most people are going to get carboplatin. It might be paired with paclitaxel, it might be paired with pemetrexa, two common choices, and then with bevacizumab. What are some of the things that you highlight to patients getting these kinds of combinations in terms of patient education? Well, certainly with the platinum, nausea can be an issue and lowering of blood counts. Now, depending on what drug you pair it with, hair loss might not be an issue. So if you're pairing the carboplatin along with the pemetrexid, that regimen would not cause hair loss usually. Sometimes I've gone back a little and started saying, oh, there can be some hair thinning because even if patients have a little bit of hair fallout, then they don't like to have heard that there will be none. But if you're going to use a taxane, such as any of the three that are approved, you're going to experience real hair loss, true alopecia, where pretty much all of your hair on your head falls off. But lowering of blood counts is going to be, you know, first and foremost of what we're going to talk about with that because that can be where the life-threatening side effects come from, you know, lowering of the white blood cells and infection prevention strategies. Now, you know, most of the drugs that seem to be getting approved by the FDA in oncology nowadays are targeted agents, but in lung cancer, actually, as you mentioned, nabpaclitaxel, a taxane that we've had around in breast cancer for a while, not that long ago, was approved in lung cancer. I'm interested in your experiences with it compared to paclitaxel and any thoughts about, again, patient education? Yeah, so we've had quite a few patients now on nabpaclitaxel. It's actually been very well tolerated. So 
it's actually been surprisingly well tolerated for our patients. It's weekly, so as opposed to some of the other taxanes where you can get away with a Q3 week regimen, this one's given weekly, and it does cause the hair loss. But other than that, we've definitely seen significantly less neuropathic toxicity or peripheral neuropathy, which has been good for patients. I would say that the lowering of blood counts has been about the same. I can't necessarily say I've seen to swing one way better than the other. The only good thing is that if you're giving it weekly, you can keep a little closer eye on the blood counts. But the other drugs can be given weekly as well. So So one of the things we've been hearing about, again, in breast cancer for years, it's interesting to get people's take on is since you don't see allergic reactions with NAP, you don't have to give corticosteroids as pre-medications. First of all, to what extent, if any, have you seen allergic reactions to paclitaxel? And do you think that not having to use corticosteroids is in any way a benefit? Absolutely. I have not seen an allergic reaction to NAB paclitaxel yet. And, and that's without using any corticosteroids. That's correct. The Well, sometimes we'll use a low dose, maybe 8 milligrams of dexamethasone, as in anti-emetic pre-med, because technically it's a low emetogenic chemotherapy. So even if you're giving it single agent or with platinum, however you're giving it, we still give maybe a little bit of dexamethasone just to prevent the nausea, but nothing like we would give for a taxane where you'd give an H2 blocker and you'd give Benadryl, you know, nothing else that... Nothing like that. And plus, we'd give higher doses of the dex. But I would say about half of patients, we don't even give the dexamethasone to. They actually have no pre-med, which is great. And I, like I said, I have not seen an allergic reaction yet. Knock on wood. <laughs> Do you see problems with corticosteroids in the patients who get, for example, paclitaxel? Yeah, for sure. Some patients, just from a sheer GI standpoint, it gives them significant GI upset. I've even had some GI bleeds from a corticosteroid premedication. And then the diabetics, of course, is also a problem. Significantly shoots up their blood sugar for that week, maybe can cause them to have to start using insulin even. That's been a problem with some of our diabetics. So yeah, certainly can be a problem. And then, of course, the jittery you know, they can't sleep for the next two nights just because of the jittery side effects that they get from the dexamethasone. So we were talking also about another chemotherapy agent that's also commonly paired with carboplatin and which is pemetrexed. Again, how do you advise a patient about to begin this drug and what is your experience with it? So pemetrexed has been very well tolerated as well. It's a quick infusion time, you know, a 10-minute infusion time is nice for patients, especially after you've been giving long hour to three hour long taxine infusion times. Doesn't cause the hair loss, doesn't cause a lot of nausea in general. Now there is the vitamin supplementation that patients have to be aware of, so the folic acid daily, and they remain on that the whole time. It's not something that they just take for a week after. It's every day while they're on therapy, and I tell them to continue it for at least three to four weeks after their last treatment. That's a common question that we get. It's helpful if you can start it a week prior to therapy. And then the vitamin B12 injections is 1,000 micrograms given IM every third cycle. Again, getting that on board a week beforehand is best if you can do that. 
And then there's a dexamethasone prep that you're supposed to do with Pemetrexid, four milligrams of dexamethasone twice a day, the day before, day of, and day after. And that's to prevent a rash, not any kind of allergic reaction. It's not an anti-emetic protocol. It's just to prevent a rash. That rash is not like an EGFR TKI rash. It's not a papulopustular rash generally. It's more of just red, sometimes raised, sometimes itchy, but not always. And that rash is pretty rare, especially with the steroids on board. It's pretty rare. Now, the other common component in these panwalled patients with metastatic disease, as you mentioned, is bevacizumab. What are the situations, first of all, where you don't use bevacizumab? So you would never use bevacizumab in a squamous patient. That's been shown that those patients have tumors that are very prone to bleeding or fatal pulmonary hemorrhage. So never in a squamous. Any patient that has had hemoptysis in the past really shouldn't get the drug because of its risk for fatal pulmonary hemorrhage. Now, the only thing that I would say would be okay with that is patients who have had maybe a recent bronchoscopy or a CT-guided needle biopsy of their tumor where they had some scant hemoptysis, just blood streaks, sputum, maybe for a day or two afterwards, which happens commonly. And I wouldn't consider that to make them bevacizumab ineligible. Beyond that, if they've had unprovoked coughing up of blood, even streaky blood, I would have a serious concern about that. And what's your experience with patients on the drug? Do you see any quality of life issues? I mean, it is a monoclonal antibody. What are some of the things that you look out for? Well, from a quality of life standpoint, patients do pretty well because a lot of the toxicity with bevacizumab is paper toxicity, so things like hypertension. I recently had a lady who was on bevacizumab for quite a while, probably a year, and her blood pressure significantly went up. At the time that we discontinued it, she was on five different agents for hypertension. And interestingly, when we took her off to switch her therapy because she had progressed, she's now down to two agents. Her blood pressure came down significantly when we took her off. Now, that's not something that she felt, so I can't necessarily say it ruined her quality of life other than that she had to take more pills. But certainly watching their blood pressure is going to be one of the most common things that you see. From a quality of life standpoint, though, patients don't really have much problems. Again, there's no pre-meds associated with it, so it's monoclonal antibody VEGF inhibitor. Now, in these patients who start out with, you know, commonly a couple of chemotherapeutic agents with bevacizumab, what happens over time? What's the strategy, you know, over the first year of treatment? Well, we want to keep them on it every three weeks. So they start off with chemotherapy and the bevacizumab. After four to six cycles of the chemotherapy, when their disease is not worsening or progressing, then we would keep them on the bevacizumab every three weeks. Again, the theory being to continue to inhibit VEGF, or if I'm talking to a patient, continuing to cut off the blood supply to your tumor. And that's a pretty easy concept for them to understand. So given that the drug doesn't have a lot of clinical toxicity for the patient and is pretty convenient once every three-week dosing, it tends to be pretty manageable. What about maintenance therapy? That's one of the strategies that's been used in this situation where you, you know, treat the patient for a certain period of time and then change that. Yeah, so for this woman that I was talking about with the significant hypertension, she had gotten chemotherapy, was on the bevacizumab for about a year. So that was maintenance treatment for the last nine months of her treatment. Then once her disease was progressing, and, I, you know, one of her scans was very minimal progression. We didn't necessarily take her off, but then 
the next scan showed even more progression. So at that point, we took her off and started with second-line therapy.